Welcome to the CCM Deep Dive Podcast as we go song by song and story by story through some of Christian music's most influential albums with the artists who created them. It's time to grab your coffee and settle in. Let's go. Oh, it's a funny thing, you know, for a while there, you, you know, when you walk into, well, for whatever it's worth, I'm about ready to answer that. This is what it's worth. Just when I think I got it. Welcome to Romans, the upbeat electric guitar driving song with a little of that ska music funky upstrumming that reached the top of the Christian hit radio charts in 1998. The chorus comes right out of the pages of Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Jennifer feels a bit differently now, though. Uh, again, this song is like another exercise in scripture. I think I just plucked one out that I was working at. Uh, I don't have to be condemned. Jesus saved me from the laws of sins. One of the few songs I'm pretty sure I say Jesus out loud. And so directly, um, not a big fan of it. Uh, it was definitely a sign that was kind of very early on in my career. Cause you don't hear much of that, uh, in other works later on down the track, particularly maybe not, you know, tucked away in a vert in a chorus. I might reference and be very specific that I'm talking about Jesus, but uh, to put it out there in such a bombastic sense is not something I'd probably feel comfortable with now. Um, but the other thing I think about that is, is guitar wise too. Like again, early on in my days um, at that time, what I remember is that Dave Matthews was starting to get some real traction. So uh, in particular, uh, uh, Marching Ants, is that the name of the song? Yeah. Ants Marching. And so you watch the, what I always found him like really like intoxicating to watch because you see his hands and he's always kind of in this extended bar formation with his left guitar playing hand. And he's, he's moving it. He's holding that hand in its form, but he also kind of almost dances up and down in the, 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 on his guitar neck. And, but yet he's not really playing in a traditional solo sense. He's doing all these hammer-ons and pull off, off these formations. And, not playing what you would uh, he's giving you this incredible guitar line but not necessarily doing like like the one note solo right the rock and roll solo he's just dancing all along that and i really loved that and so when when it comes to romans i'm actually playing these open bar chords which i attribute to my inability to play like dave matthews at all but i love that the how sexy his hand looked and how he was able to hold those forms and what those forms teach you about other places that are transferable along the neck of your guitar so th- that was a lesson for me and so that i slept you know, in Romans, I do a slide up from a B formation up to uh, C sharp, I think it is. Dun, dun, yeah, up to a B, B from a B major, which basically the idea is that I'm playing a B major bar chord open, but only three fingered. And I slide it up to a C sharp, which is not the minor snart articulated because I'm playing it open. So I get to slide and touch on it. And you're not actually 
you don't actually let rest on that chord very long. You just touch it. And that's a very Dave Matthews move where you get something in the theory, in the music theory, that's actually moving to a minor chord in the progression, but it doesn't stay there long. So it's just a note, which is kind of something you leave space only bass players to do. If you know anything about music, you know, basses will often lead you through that line in a step down or a transition onto something else but the whole band is actually making the move when the guitarist does it. it it really demands that so it was an accidental thing that i learned from dave matthews and whenever i see that song i'm like oh yeah this is my marching ant song like i i was it was something i learned but from watching somebody else trying to implement it in my own work and um the guitar i think was really driving it um to kind of be that and also the same thing that I'll say about Marching Ants is that chorus, you know, the, the verse is really choppy. It's the, it really holds a lot of that rhythm. And in breaking up that rhythm, you get then to this expansive chorus. So the chorus then goes to all these kind of open strummings and gets back to a more traditional rock and roll vibe, which is something that Dave Matthews does in his work as well. He might be really choppy for a while, but he always gives you that kind of epic moment. And I, I learned a lot from that. makes Dave interesting as a guitar player is that for a long time he was a bit of a one-man band and you can hear that in his playing style. He often plays the bass line and percussion parts while he's strumming. I wouldn't say in any way I'm even remotely near Dave Matthews caliber but what I've appreciated about the circumstances under which I play have shaped the way that I've evolved as a guitar player over time. I've spent a majority of my career playing acoustic songs and playing them by myself. In fact, a lot of these songs develop and become cemented in my mind and establish themselves with a lot of solo acoustic work. So by the time you bring it to the studio or by the time you bring it to a band, you what I didn't realize was happening over the years that I was doing exactly what you described with Dave. You're, you know, in order to perform this live, I'm doing some kind of move that's evocative of a bass line. And I'm also developing a rhythm that's actually evocative of some hi-hats or some symbol work. And so you don't realize that you're actually taking up what this... So when I get to the studio, oftentimes I'm having to pare down my guitar performance because I'm actually taking up too much space. It's too incoherent when I get into the studio. Now I have the maturity to do that. But I think early on, I think if I went back and listened to this record now, I'd notice just how painful the acoustic parts are to me at times because it's just filling up that gap, those gaps. But I mean, I'm able to, to, to drop those things a little bit more now these days, but I also don't I equally try not to resist them. I think they are what makes my music unique. I think the the development of songs becomes really important and it has to me over the years. Like I don't really like going to this studio with a song that hasn't earned its merit out on the road. It hasn't established itself. It doesn't know who it is. So why would I want to record it? Like when it knows who it is, then I'm usually ready to put it on a record right about that time. Some artists work out a song in the studio before introducing it to a live audience. But Jennifer likes to do the opposite, get all the kinks worked out on the road before putting the song onto an album for all time. 
that's my favorite way to do it. I mean, the songs that I really care about, I'll, I will likely do that. I mean, I've lost a few songs that I put on records just because they haven't had a chance to mature. And then, you know, it's, I mean, you can, I can, I've taken plenty of songs into the studio that I haven't spent much time with and I've recorded in that way. And if I don't know them, I don't remember to play them or I can go back and play them, but it's kind of weird. So once you, you know, once you go into the studio, there's something about that experience. It feels like you've cemented it down. And if it doesn't know itself before it gets there, it somehow feels like it's been anchored into some identity before it's had a chance to grow. So it's just the way that I respond to songs. Um, but it's amazing to me. Like the more I get to know something prior to that experience, the, the more it tends to show up in my sets. That's for sure. That model of working out the songs in the road before recording them for the album paid off for Jennifer as Romans reached number one on the Christian hit radio chart, one of three from Kansas, an achievement that helped open the doors for Jennifer, but maybe not the ones you might think. <laughs> oh, it's a funny thing, you know, for a while there, you, you know, when you walk into, well, for whatever it's worth, I'm about ready to answer that. This is what it's worth. Um, for whatever reason, whenever you go into like a, you know, a uh, like a building where the doors automatically open when you get there. One day I was walking in the door. I'm like, oh, it knows that I have three, num- three number one CHR hits. <laughs> like, that's all it gets me is like when I, I imagine that it gets me some kind of hospitality where people open up the doors to me and say, yes, ma'am, welcome, Miss Knapp. And that's at Walmart, you know, with automatic doors. I'm like, that's three number one CHRs. And, um, yeah, I, I, I'm glad you remember because I couldn't I knew that I had three three songs that charted on this record, but I couldn't really remember what they were. Uh, so I guess Roman's one of them. While Toby Mack was the executive producer, meaning he more or less financed the project, there was plenty of other star power all over the album. As mentioned earlier, the photographer for the cover was Toby's sister, Carrie, who at the time was married to this guy. Come and go with me to my father's house come and go with me to my father's house it's a big big house with lots and lots of room a big big table with lots and lots of food a big, big that's of course mark stewart the lead singer for audio adrenaline toby mack discovered the band and helped to get them signed Mark was brought in to produce Kansas, so he naturally enlisted the help of not just some of his bandmates, but members from some of the biggest names in CCM at the time. DC Talk's bassist Otto Price, Jeff Moore and the Distance drummer Greg Harrington, Sixpence None the Richer's Matt Slocum, and Tyler Burkham, formerly of Audio Adrenaline and currently with Need to Breathe, not to mention Eddie DeGarmo on the B3 organ. And all of this was recorded at Toby Mac's studio, the House of Insomnia, in Franklin. Yeah, you know, I think the important thing about that is that it was Mark Stewart's first, you know, time at being responsible for a record. It's not, the, you know, I think anytime you talk about an artist who's been in the studio for a while, it's not like, you know, we're totally naive. But when you're a producer of the record, I mean, obviously the responsibility for getting that thing tracked on time and, and naming the players and piecing that together kind of amps up its responsibility. And so this was the first time Mark had taken that on. And uh, I think before, I think one of the breakout artists on that record uh, was uh, Tyler Burkham, who was doing some electric work on that. And he hadn't started playing for Audio Adrenaline yet. He was just some whippersnapper kid that they had found that Mark knew. And this was one of the first times, like, it was an excuse to get Tyler into Nashville and prove his chops. So uh, he was just an incredibly creative kid. He ended up being the lead guitarist for Audio Adrenaline for many years to come and was 
like for me, it was really helpful to have somebody kind of young and around my age, not that anybody else was old, but like for somebody new to Nashville, it was really comforting to have somebody that I could kind of experience the newness of this with. So that's what I remember about that. And then, um, and then of course, you know, he knew because of the audio adrenaline ties and the Mark, obviously being tied to, to Toby Mac and the DC talk camp, uh, Otto Price was the bass player for a long time for the DC talk camp. So a lot of those relationships, when you realize that for people who don't know that it's, it's pretty critical for producers oftentimes to be able to think about the players. And Mark did a really good job of being able to bring in some competent guys that, I think what I would say about Mark and his choice of people coming in is that these were guys who weren't just studio cats. It, it made our our tracking sometimes a little bit challenging. And I think with some of the time signature and some of the diversity of, of, of song styles that I brought and movements that I, that weren't atypical to kind of like just straight ahead four four. You were saying, you know, like you were saying, like undo me's funk, and then next you go to Romans, and it's got this kind of swing to it. And then you know there are other songs with like six eight tempos, which a lot of rock band people don't have a lot of experience with that. But that's all to say that I think what Mark brought to that kind of these years later is that the players that he brought in weren't just hardcore studio cats. Just they were people familiar with playing live music and familiar with being rock and roll, and kind of open to the side of CCM that understood something about the garage band nature of of where the music where this music in particular was coming from it wasn't trying to fit into the vein of ccm it didn't want to be you know i think i was purposed in not signing with sparrow records or word records or any kind of the mainstream uh ccm things because it this record already didn't make sense to the way that the records that they were producing at the time and so i think like mark's relationship with people who just knew how to play knew how to listen and loved creating music um uh, kind of against the establishment a little bit a little bit messy and a little bit fast and quick where it was well done by him in the end Having a team of A-list musicians from the most successful bands at the time would be intimidating for any artist. There is a balance between what the artist envisions and what the team hears. That can be magnified when the artist is new to the process and the hired help is well-seasoned. So how much latitude did Mark and the guys give Jennifer? Uh I think a great deal. I mean, I, I, there were, I mean, if you're unfamiliar with, you know, I was unfamiliar kind of coming to Nashville when there was certainly great, certainly a great few conversations that I can point to that were about entertaining, altering some of the music. So I can think of a, a couple songs like, um, we we'll talk about this in visions. Like we, that have a a different time feel to them. So you're talking about like changing the structure of the song or things that didn't, that I wasn't familiar with would have made a song easier to record by changing something in the song and the structure of the song, which meant that I had to change the lyric, which meant that I was going to start resisting because I really held to the lyrics. Like to me, the lyrics were primary, I think, to that time. And I didn't really think as much um, musically at the time as, as much as I was safeguarded the lyrics. So that's all to say is I feel like uh, I got, I was very well respected in from goatee and to the the camp that I was working with. And I, I felt safe enough to from time to time speak up, even though I didn't necessarily have the experience or speak to their experience and, and really champion my own cause. And, you know, I didn't win all those battles. And I, I, I think I, the ones that I lost, I was glad that I lost, you know, so to speak. Um, I think I was able to have some really, uh, I, I think I was able to have some 
very useful developmental conversations that gave me that latitude to be able to experience, you know, to be able to have some very good dialogue and make some very good choices. And then I grew a lot from being able to have to be able to kind of understand where my lines were, um, where I could be a little bit more flexible. And I think there were a few battles I probably won in there because of that latitude that I wish I had lost (laughs) Uh, a couple of things that, um, that, you know, I wish I'd actually listened to at the time and later on. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm really I'm really proud of this record. I think, you know, there are some musical things in there that I asked Mark specifically to push really hard for us to be able to do. And I think he listened to me. And I think other times there were times that, you know, he was like, he never said, you know, you don't know what you're doing. I always felt really respected in that process. And I think he really valued an understanding of what it means to be a songwriter and to at some point in time, I think every songwriter has to consider themselves somewhat of a producer on the record. I mean, you're never, you're so influential to the work and you have so much to say about that. And just because it's not necessarily reflecting in the administrative duties, it's always there creatively. And I think Mark understood that. So I was really grateful for that respect. Thank you for listening to this episode of the CCM Deep Vibe podcast with Jennifer Knapp. Join us next week as we dive into Refine Me. Just when-